Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In his lifetime, he was the most powerful man in the world. His name is one that changed the course of history, and Luke puts him at the very center of the story that we heard this morning. His name was Gaius Octavius, and he was born in 63 BC as the nephew of Julius Caesar. Octavius was adopted by Julius and became his son. So when Julius was assassinated on the Ides of March in 44 BC, the 19-year-old Octavius set his sight on that now vacant seat of power. Through a bloody campaign, Octavius consolidated all of the power into himself, and he became the first Roman emperor. When he came into power, he took the name Caesar Augustus, which means great, and he ruled until his death in 14 AD. Even 2,000 years later, he is remembered as one of history's most influential and powerful rulers. Now, of course, we are not here this morning because of Emperor Augustus. But for St. Luke, the story of the birth of the Messiah begins not in Nazareth, Jerusalem, or Bethlehem, but in Rome, where Augustus issued a decree. At the beginning of the gospel, Luke writes, After investigating everything carefully from the very first, I decided to write an orderly account for you, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. In other words, Luke is very intentional about what he has chosen to write. And the fact that he begins this story of the birth of the Messiah with a decree from Emperor Augustus is telling. Luke did not have to start the story this way. He simply could have said, when Joseph returned to the city of his ancestor David and left us just wondering why he went there, or he could have left out Augustus' name altogether. But Luke is a master theologian and storyteller, and he is making an important point. Augustus had ordered a census of the whole world. Now, yes, we know that the Roman Empire did not really extend across the entire globe, but that's not the point. The point is that this story has global implications. This is not about what happened in Israel, Rome, or across the empire, but the entire world is caught up in this story. Now, even a couple of, a couple of decades ago, a census was a simple survey that was done to obtain data about population trends and then to help us in planning. More recently, the census has become political in the negative sense of that word. And while that is not a good thing for our society, it does help us to at least understand this text better. Imagine if the president or Congress could call for a new census anytime they wanted one in order to make their power more secure. Well, that's what Augustus is after, because a census accomplishes three things. First, it makes sure that everyone has paid their taxes, so it generates income for the empire. 
Secondly, it tells the emperor how many men there are in the empire. That is, how many disposable bodies there are to be foot soldiers in the next war. And thirdly, it reminds everyone who is in charge. The census is a show of power. Augustus can make people go here and there to be counted, whether or not it is convenient for them. The great irony in this is, of course, that while Augustus thinks that he is the chess master moving these pieces around his empire, he's actually the pawn being used by God in the plan of salvation. He ordered a census as a means of growing and furthering his power. But God uses that census to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where the heir of King David's line will be born in the city of David. It's a reminder that God is sovereign over all things. Now, I'm not saying that God causes all things. Whether or not it was God who gave this idea to Augustus to have a census, truly, I don't know. But I do know that God can maneuver things, even when we are unwitting participants in God's plan. By starting the story with Augustus, Luke presents Jesus as a very different sort of savior. Augustus, Augustus has us thinking in terms of prestige and might. And so when the focus shifts to Jesus, we can see that God is interested in a very different kind of power. We might say that instead of making a red carpet entrance, God prefers to come in through the back door. As the wonderful carol, what child is this, notes, he lies in such mean a state. Jesus enters the story not in the way that Augustus does, but in humility and relative anonymity, which should tell us something about God. First, there's no room for the Holy Family. To be clear, in is a horrible translation. It is not like the no vacancy light was on at the Bethlehem Holiday Inn. The word here actually means something like the guest room or the spare room. But the issue is not hospitality, it's privacy. Childbirth is something that if you have the option, You'd rather not do it in a room crowded full of people. The issue is not that no one would receive Mary and Joseph. It's that they couldn't find a fitting place for Mary to give birth. What this tells us is that God comes in the midst of chaos. I can tell you that both, when both of our daughters were born, I was pretty stressed and anxious about the whole thing, and we had a hospital to give birth in. I'm sure Mary and Joseph also felt that sense of anxiety. And so I can't imagine the chaos of going into birth and not even being able to find a decent place to do it. But God is not scared off by our lack of plans or our chaos. Whatever is going on in your life, God will come into it. Now, both tradition and archaeology tell us that Jesus was born not in a barn, or a stable, or any of the other things you've seen in art, but rather in a cave. And often the livestock were the family's most valuable possessions. And so it was common to have the animals sleeping in the cave with the family for safekeeping. And that explains why a manger was present. Now manger is just a fancy way of saying a feeding trough. 
If you think about a dog bowl, you'll get the right set of connections in your mind. There was nowhere to lay Jesus, so they put him in the trough. Now, God is either clearly orchestrating this whole thing, or again, God is just very good at making lemonade out of lemons. Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread, and Jesus will later declare that he is the bread of life. So we have the bread of life born in the house of bread, being laid where the food goes. This is more than a coincidence. It is showing Jesus to be the daily bread of God's grace. And this birth is not announced with great fanfare as would occur with earthly royalty, but rather a host of angels come to some shepherds working the night shift. No trumpets, no horses, no swords, no parades, but rather a band of God's messengers who come singing peace to all those on earth. When these angels visit the shepherds, they say that they are bringing good news of great joy that the Savior has been born, the Messiah. And the sign of this great news is that they will find the baby lying in a feed trough. Now we've become so accustomed to this story that it's just easy for us to miss how absurd this is. Imagine if we were having a conversation about politics and we both agreed that we need a great president to come along and help our nation get out of the mess that it's in. And then what if I told you, hey, great news. I heard that a teenage mom out in the county had a baby. And since they don't have a proper cradle, the baby's lying in an empty beer case. Now, understandably, you would think that I am crazy to find hope in that. How is a peasant birth indicative of the good news of the Messiah's coming? The good news is that God's power doesn't work in the way the emperor's does. There is no oppression, no forced worship, no in-your-face extravagance. And this is by design because God comes in through the back door. And that means that God could get into the places that we would probably try to keep him out. God doesn't show up and say, here I am, bow down to me. Instead, God comes in acts of grace, mercy, compassion, and love. Slowly and steadily, God softens our sin-hardened hearts and takes up residence in them. Truly, God does work in mysterious ways, like coming as the Messiah to an otherwise unremarkable town and people as a needy baby lying in a manger. It reminds me of a story about a man who lived on the U.S.-Canadian border. His business would take him from one side of the border to the other often, and so he had to go through customs a lot. He didn't drive a car, though. He rode a bicycle. And on the back of his bicycle, there was a box strapped to it. And this, of course, intrigued the customs officials. So they asked him to open the box. Now, sometimes the box was empty. Sometimes there were packing peanuts in there, sometimes rocks or sand. And they knew he was up to something. What was he trying to smuggle into the country in that box? Well, for years and years, this went on, and they never figured out what he was doing. But one day, one of the customs officials saw this man in a diner, 
and went up to him and said, hey man, I retired a couple years ago. I don't care what you were smuggling across the border. I'm not gonna turn you in, but I've gotta know, what were you smuggling? The man smiled and said, bicycles. <laughs> that is how God comes into the world, smuggled right under the nose of the empire. Now today we still have Augustus with us, but you know him by different names. Quarterly earnings, politics, the media, capitalism. The emperor still demands our allegiance, still wants to count us for the purposes of making money off of us and our livelihood. Jesus, of course, is also still with us, and you will still find him in the most unexpected of places and people. The question is, where do we turn our focus? Are we enamored with shows of fame and wealth and strength? One look at our culture says that we are. Jesus, though, comes through the back door. To be sure, whether we welcome him or not, Jesus will find his way into our lives, our institutions, our churches. But this is the grace of Christmas that God came to us in Jesus and continues to come to us daily through whatever means are necessary. We can prefer to hang out with Caesar at the Empire Club, or we can be co-conspirators with God's grace. But either way, Jesus will stop at nothing to bring his peace to us. He will not stop at our resistance, not at our fears, not at our doubts, not at our sins, not even at our death. Indeed, glory to God in the highest for this peace that he has brought to us on earth.